He was an American flautist living in London, studying at the Royal Academy of Music. At only 20 years of age, he was intelligent, gifted, talented, a prodigy. On the evening of June 24, 2009, he performed at the Academy in London Soundscapes, featuring the music of composers such as Joseph Hayden, George Frederick Handel, and Felix Mendelssohn. But his flute wasn't the only thing he brought with him the evening of his performance. He had with him a relatively large piece of luggage, a rolling suitcase that contained in it the accoutrements of a thief, gloves, a small flashlight, a pair of wire cutters, a glass cutting saw with a diamond blade. After the concert, he retrieved the suitcase from his locker and put his plan into motion, making his way towards the Natural History Museum in the town of Tring. This wasn't the first time he'd been there, but it would certainly be his last. After months of reconnaissance, investigating, casing, scouting, scrutinizing, studying, evaluating, analyzing, and planning, he was confident that he would be able to make his way around the walls, the barbed wire, the cameras, and the guards in order to get what he was there to pilfer a collection of coveted relics of the past, many of which no longer exist anywhere in the world, unique, rare, endangered, extinct, priceless, and irreplaceable, all for a hobby that grew into an obsession and a golden flute. In this latest series, I'll be taking you across the pond to England for one of the most baffling crimes ever carried out. This is California Dreaming, and you are listening to the tale of the Great Feather Heist. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is an independent one-woman production, and there are a number of ways that you can support the podcast. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on preferably five stars if you truly enjoy listening. It pushes us up the charts and helps new listeners discover us. You can recommend the show in true crime podcast fan groups. You can like our Facebook page, leave a rating for the show there too. Join our discussion group and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. And if you would like to go above and beyond, you can support us on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you will not only be helping us keep the lights on, you will also gain access to dozens of exclusive full-length episodes and multi-part series cases as well. And if a subscription is not your thing, you can make a one-time contribution through PayPal by using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I would like to thank Jeff S., Skippy S., Brandy K., Muffy, Nicole S., Laura C., Stacy M., Amanda O., Mandy S., John H., and Leslie M. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or opting in on the annual subscription option. I truly appreciate all of your support. And our brand new Patreon series will begin very shortly. The backdrop this time will be California's wine country. Most of this episode is based on the research and investigation into this crime conducted by Kirk Johnson, 
founder of the nonprofit The List Project, which I mentioned at the beginning of part one. Johnson wrote a book about this case that we are covering entitled The Feather Thief, Beauty, Obsession, and the Natural History Heist of the Century. It will be referenced throughout the episode and in the show notes. Okay, so last time in part three, we saw Edwin successfully pull off the museum heist where he managed to get away with 299 birdskins in all. And because the museum curators found that their most valuable high dollar items hadn't been taken, they mistakenly assumed that nothing was missing. It wasn't until 34 days later when a curator was giving a guided tour to a researcher and pulled out a drawer where they kept their Indian crows and found that it was empty and that they had been robbed. Without much time having passed, investigators found that they had exactly zero leads to go on. Meanwhile, Edwin began figuring out what he wanted to do with the birds, how he was going to earn money, and he began putting those plans into motion until he finally had to put it all away for the time being while he was on summer vacation back in New York with his family. Eventually, investigators decided that it was time that they needed to go public with the news of the break-in. Otherwise, there was going to be no chance that they would recover any of the bird skins. So a press release was prepared, and several UK news outlets picked up the story, as did some online forums, including fly-tying forums. And the news of the theft was about to reach the Wrist family, all the way over in New York. Edwin had just arrived back home, and he was at his parents' house when he received a phone call from his younger brother, Anton. When he answered the phone, all he heard was Anton shouting, Someone stole birds from a museum. I just saw the discussion about it on the fly-tying forum. A sinking feeling set in as Edwin got on the computer and looked it up for himself. Sure enough, there was the post with a statement from police in Tring. And part of it said that they wanted anyone who might have any information about specific collectors who are interested in these types of bird skins and their species to be aware of anyone who might be attempting to offer them up for sale. But there were some things in the press release video that steered away from Edwin altogether. There was a speculation of this crime having been carried out by an international crime syndicate. We talked about that in part three. And they said that the 299 birds that were stolen would have filled up at least a half dozen large garbage bags. We all know that Edwin fit all 299 birds into one large suitcase. So there was a moment of relief that even though the police were officially going public, they were kind of on the wrong track already and headed in a direction away from him. But then, as Edwin continued watching, the inspector speaking at the press conference was asked why they thought those specific species of birds were taken, since dozens of the same ones were stolen. The inspector said that they had some theories that they had been entertaining. Perhaps they were being used by someone in the fashion industry or perhaps some kind of jeweler who worked with these kinds of colorful, rare feathers. And then he said that there may be some use for these feathers amongst fishing enthusiasts. The motive wasn't clear, but they were keeping all avenues of investigation open. 
and with that, any chance of Edwin's options of returning the birds to the museum was over. The police had gone public, meaning that they were serious about tracking down who broke into the museum. And the word was already spreading very quickly across the fly tying community. I mean, the news had even reached his brother within days of the press release, all the way over here in the United States. And it wasn't making huge front page headlines across the country. But if you were an avid fly tire, then you were probably in the know. What was Edwin going to do now? If the word was spreading across the globe, anyone who visits fly tying websites is going to know about it. Which means if he suddenly shows up on those websites or on eBay selling these bird skins and feathers, it's not going to take a genius to put two and two together. Everybody in the community who knows him knows he's living in London. And oh, it just so happened that a museum near London gets robbed of all the exact birds that have the highest market value when it comes to salmon flies. And he had made such a name for himself as a master fly tire. Everybody was familiar with him. They'd certainly figure it out immediately if he started openly selling what he had on hand. So, what was Edwin going to do now? Perhaps he could hang on to the birds for a few years, just keep them hidden away in his closet until the heat died down and maybe start selling the feathers once the case of the feather heist had officially grown cold. But Edwin needed money now. It wasn't realistic for him to wait five or ten years. He had to have a new flute, remember his philosophy, there's no point in doing anything unless you go for the best. And his family was in financial dire straits. Besides all that, it had taken the museum and the police weeks before they had realized that they'd been burglarized. They had to be a bunch of morons if it took them that long to figure it out. What are the chances that they'd really be able to track him down in the infinite vastness of the internet anyway? Besides, all of the crimes that they had to concern themselves with, how much of their time, effort, and resources are they really going to want to put into tracking down a bunch of dusty old dead birds anyway? So yeah, Edwin was pretty good at rationalizing this stuff and talking himself into doing things that he knows is probably going against his better judgment. I think a lot of criminals tend to think that way. Yes, Edwin was a bit harsh on the police and the museum. They did kind of drop the ball when it came to this break-in, and they should have been more vigilant about keeping track of their inventory. The guard on duty, while the museum defended him and his actions that night, he clearly did not do his job. He dismissed the alarm that Edwin had triggered when he broke the window. I don't know how frequently he was to make his rounds, but clearly Edwin was left with way more time than he should have had as he emptied drawer after drawer of dead birds. And according to Edwin, the security guard was busy watching a soccer match. Again, the museum disputed that by saying the guard was not a soccer fan. Now, if this happened in the United States, I would believe that 100%. But because this is in the UK, I'm not quite buying it. 
If you Google soccer's most dedicated fan bases in the world, soccer's rowdiest fan bases in the world, soccer's most thuggish fan bases in the world, you'll find English soccer club fans sprinkled throughout every list. So I'm gathering that soccer is kind of a big deal over there. I mean, wasn't there just some rioting around Wembley Stadium a couple months ago when England lost to Italy in a penalty shootout in the European finals? I'm just saying. And one last thing about soccer before I move on. The day that Edwin broke into the museum was the same day that the U.S. national men's soccer team pulled off arguably one of the biggest upsets in football history when they beat the reigning European championship team, Spain, at the Confederations Cup to advance to the tournament finals. So was the guard watching soccer? Edwin says he was. The museum says that he wasn't. The one thing I think we can all agree on is he wasn't watching the cameras or reacting to the alarm that Edwin had triggered. As I said in the last episode, this was an embarrassment for the museum, and this was, I guess, their way of saving face and trying to do some damage control. And all it did was embolden Edwin as he decided to go ahead with his plan to sell these birds and feathers online. By the way, the one variable Edwin didn't factor into his plan were the legions of obsessed, dedicated fly tires out there. After all, he was one of them, and he knew firsthand how bad it felt to see what other tires had out there in the way of rare feathers and endless supplies of money. I'm sure that there were plenty of times when he felt the stinging pangs of jealousy. And jealousy can certainly be a bitch sometimes. The timeline of what Edwin did over the next year is detailed in Kirk Johnson's book, so I'm going to break it down here for you. At the end of the summer of 2009, this would be three months after the heist, Edwin flew back to London as he entered his third year at the Royal Academy of Music. A month later, he went online and purchased 1,100 small resealable plastic baggies and 500 medium-sized ones. And then on November 8th, Edwin decided to go ahead and begin posting in earnest on the website ClassicFlyTying.com on their quote-unquote trading floor page, and this is where he created his first post. The headline read, Indian Crow Feathers for Sale, Buying a New Flute. Below that, he wrote, the time has come for me to upgrade my instrument, and I am selling some crow feathers to help this along. He then listed the species and the subspecies in Latin. I will spare all of you the butchering of all those words because I'm sure that there is someone out there fluent in Latin that's going to want to come at me about it, so I'm not even going to try right now. Edwin also wrote, all are super A quality. I have limited numbers. So it's first come, first serve, and there is no limit on the number of feathers that you can buy at one time. Edwin then listed the prices as well as some digital pictures that he took. He uploaded as well. Kirk Johnson described the response to Edwin's post as ravenous. I went and looked around for classicflytying.com, but that URL no longer exists. I dug a little deeper and found that it is now called flytyingforum.com and the message boards are pretty busy. 
I searched the word Edwin and I came up with about 10 pages of results going from most recent to the oldest. And it was kind of interesting to scroll backwards in time and see how the discussion about Edwin had evolved in real time over the past decade or so, going all the way back to when Edwin and his brother Anton were active posters and commenters on the forum as early as 2005. I'll share some of the timeline of the discussion and the interactions involving him, kind of like I did in part one with Walter Rothschild. I'll go over the forum discussions after the outro in this case, in case you don't want to listen to them. It'll give us an idea of just how prolific Edwin had been in the community. And they also talk a lot about Kirk Johnson and his book as well. There are some spoilers, so I might go ahead and save some of this discussion thread for the end of part five. I don't know if this is going to go into six parts yet or not. But anyway, just one day after Edwin posted the Indian crow feathers on the forum, he ordered more resealable baggies, but in a bigger size, large enough to hold the whole bird skin rather than just the bits of feathers. The day after that, he left a comment on his post letting potential buyers know that the feathers were selling fast, so they needed to hurry up before they were gone for good. Almost three weeks after Edwin's first post in the forum, he logged into a UK eBay account that he had opened right before his initial visit to the train museum back in November of 2008 under the username FlutePlayer1988, and he made his first post selling one whole blue chatterer skin on eBay. I'll tell you what happened next in the timeline of Edwin's online selling activities, but I wanted to tell you what I found when I searched blue chatterer. So when I made that search, my top results took me to the flyfishingforum.com, of course. I'll probably be getting prompted to phishing websites for years to come after this series. But anyway, it took me to a 2003 discussion thread about the bird years before Edwin's heist. And the question was, does anyone know how much a full skin is worth in regards to the blue chatterer? Or how much some of you would be willing to pay for one? The first response was, if you can find one, it will run a good piece of change because they are so rare. The only legal source is zoo aviaries that had a bird die. And this is neither a common species nor a common occurrence for a zoo's birds. Expect to pay somewhere between 2500 and 4000 And when I put that into the inflation calculator, that's 3700 to $6,000 today. Possibly more for a blue chatterer's full skin. Single feathers are being sold for $25 to $100 each. Personally, I will not pay that kind of money for a bird skin. Remember that even the old masters, such as Kelson, Hardy, Hale, Blacker, Price Tannett, and Maxwell, regularly substituted Kingfisher for Blue Chatterer and spoke of doing so in their books because of how hard it was to get Chatterer and how expensive it was even then. Use Kingfisher or better yet, African Roller to substitute. You can use small white duck feathers or the white feathers from a Chinese pheasant dyed blue. Personally, I use the African roller because it has more of the desirable fluorescent-like blue feathers than the kingfisher. The kingfisher is around $25 per skin, 
the African roller is about 35, give or take. This is far better than what a chatterer skin is selling for, provided you can find one. As soon as Edwin uploaded the picture of the blue chatterer on eBay, word traveled quickly through the fly tying forums. I mean, we know that years earlier, back in 2003, the community were discussing how expensive these rare skins were even then, even commenting that it was like that 150 years ago when importing bird skins was still legal. And it doesn't get any better as time goes on. I looked on eBay and there are no blue chatterer skins or feathers listed at all. In Kirk Johnson's book, he transcribed a message thread between three fly tying forum members discussing Flute Player 1988's eBay post. A member named Angler Andrew wrote, From Britain as well. I've never seen one on eBay from Britain. Anyway, there's about 10 minutes left and still no bids. Man, if I won the lottery. A member named Moncorder wrote, Hmm. The seller is Flute Player 1988. Edwin Rist sold some Indian crow to pay for a new flute recently. Coincidence? Maybe. However, I suspect the seller is Mr. Rist, so it should be of good quality from an honest seller. A member named Mitch wrote, Anyway, I wish him well and hopefully he gets his flute before Christmas. Cheers. So, things were kind of low-key for Edwin and his eBay posting, at least for the time being. While all of this was going on, on eBay, Edwin had connected with a fly-tying enthusiast from the United States. This person was a dentist, he was from the state of Washington, and he very much wanted to purchase some whole bird skins from Edwin. And we'll just refer to him as the dentist. Anyway, he was so interested in the birdskins that he wanted to come and meet Edwin in person. It just so happened that the dentist had been on a fishing trip in Africa, and on his way back to the States, he was to have a layover in London for several hours. So when he got there, they met up at a restaurant at a local hotel, where over some beers, Edwin showed the dentist the birdskins that he said he was interested in possibly purchasing from him. Edwin explained that he had become acquainted with some collectors who were members of the aristocracy or the nobility, something uppity and British, and they had asked him to help them sell some pieces from their collections. And he explained to the dentist that he was a student and he needed the money for his tuition. The dentist wasn't clear on whether or not he would be able to travel internationally with these birdskins. So he decided on three of them, and he asked Edwin to reserve those, one flame bowerbird, one Indian crow, and one blue chatterer. When the dentist arrived back in the United States, he mailed Edwin a check for $7,000, and Edwin shipped the three skins to the dentist's office. Now it appears as though the package may have been opened and inspected, because inside there was a document from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services inside. But the dentist didn't know if it was something that Edwin had forged and placed inside, or if the agency had actually inspected the contents of the package, okayed it, and sent it on its way. Whatever the case, Edwin Rist made a cool seven grand 
just like that. So, you know, in every community, there's always that really well-known, well-respected elder. In the fly tying community, they have many of them, I'm sure. But there's one specifically that I wanted to discuss. He was an 87-year-old feather dealer named Phil Castleman. And he's been in the game for the better part of six decades. He had a shop in Springfield, Massachusetts called the Castle Arms. It's just a couple of blocks away from the Connecticut River. And it's known for all things salmon fly tying related, as well as having other things that belong to him on display in his shop, like animal pelts, stuffed birds, and an amazing collection of salmon flies given to him by some of the world's most well-known tires. It's not like one of those businesses that's open all the time. You have to make an appointment with Phil and he'll meet you there. But anyway, Phil has his thumb on the pulse of the fly tying community. So as soon as Edwin's post hit the internet, Phil began receiving calls from several of his customers telling him about some very rare birds that were being listed on eBay UK. And they wanted to know about the legalities of those birds being shipped to the United States. As many connections Phil had across the country, he had just as many in England, and the collection of birds being auctioned was news to him. He knew just about every prominent collector, and this was a collection he knew nothing about, which was strange. Meanwhile, Edwin was getting a good number of interested buyers, and the best part of it all was they weren't really all that curious about where these birds had come from. Edwin figured that the obsession these fly tires had, it was an obsession that he shared, so Edwin understood that this obsession outweighed any concerns they may have had about the origins of the items that he was selling. Legal or illegal, they were content to look the other way. But there were those who wanted to know because they genuinely did not want to get in any kind of trouble. So Edwin had a set of auto responses, stories that he made up about the skins and how he happened upon them. I mentioned earlier that he used the story that it was a lucky find from an antiquities dealer, an estate sale that he ran across. He'd even come up with a story that he had a friend in New Guinea with whom he bartered for the birds of paradise. Edwin carried on with the selling off of the birds and feathers without a hitch, for the rest of 2009. And when it came to the investigation into the burglary, the museum staff were going back through several years of old emails to see if there had been anyone who had mentioned any of the species of birds that were stolen. And they did come across two individuals. Both of them had connections to Edwin. One was his Canadian fly-tying friend, Luke, Couturier, and the guy who gave Edwin and his brother salmon fly tying lessons for the first time at his shop in Maine, Ed Muzzy Muzzroll. Remember Luke was the one that told Edwin about the Tring Museum and Muzzy was the one who taught Edwin how to tie salmon flies. Both of them had sent emails expressing interest in purchasing the exact birds that were stolen from the museum but they were told that their specimens were not for sale. While they were both questioned, they were ultimately ruled out. 
But even though these two had interacted regularly with Edwin over the years and were well acquainted with him, Detective Adele Hopkin, the lead investigator on the Feather Heist case, did not make the connection. While the story had been in the press and the museum had made it clear that they were devastated by the loss of the 299 birdskins and that they were desperate to see them back in their rightful place, they had quietly figured that the chances of recovering them intact with their bio data tags still in place was slim. The birds were worthless to the museum, to science, to history without those tags. But they still wanted whatever was left back and they wanted the culprit arrested and prosecuted. Now, investigators had entertained the possibility that a fly tire may have been responsible for the stolen birds. And ironically, if they had just done a simple Google click-click, they would have been taken right to the bird skins up for auction on eBay or the various discussions about the birds on the numerous fly tying forums where users were talking about the birds that Edwin, flute player 1988, had up for sale. He had mentions all over the place. He still does. I told you I would go over some of it at the end of the episode. The museum had also surmised that just like those two previous thefts that I talked about in the last episode, the electrocuted disabled egg guy and the fake British soldier and ornithologist who swiped birdskins, retagged them and claimed to have been the one to have collected them, that they had both visited the museum prior to the thefts. They were casing the joint, as they say. The museum curators wondered if their most recent thief visited the museum ahead of time as well. The list of visitors who were granted access to the bird vault over the past year numbered around 100. And it could have been one of them. And their name would be listed when they signed in on the museum's guest book. Edwin did indeed visit the train ahead of time, and he used his real name and ID card when he signed in for his private visit into the vault. It was November 5th, 2008. That was the date of his very first visit. But for whatever reason, even after more than six months on the case, they never thought to make any Google searches and cross-reference what they could have found on eBay and on the fly-tying forums with the names that were in their guest book. I mean, the detective, Adele Hopkin, she had her caseload, and missing birds couldn't exactly take priority over the other more serious and violent crimes that she was assigned to. But even the curators at the museum hadn't thought to check online either. They did give Detective Hopkin leads when they had them, and she would investigate everything, but they were coming up on dead ends every which way they went. By the beginning of 2010, Edwin's black market feather hustle was raking in cash, hand over fist. He had it down to a routine. When he needed some money, he would post a couple of packets of feathers and they'd be sold by the end of the day. He'd pack it up, mail it off, and he'd soon be flush with cash. And if he ever needed any more money, he'd just have to go and post some more feathers for sale. 
So fast forwarding to March 6th, 2010. On that day, there was to be the annual fly fishing show in the town of Newark-on-Trent, 140 miles or 225 kilometers north of London. Edwin had made arrangements to meet a man there by the name of Dave Carn. Dave had recently borrowed a sizable chunk of money from his mom, $3,500 to be exact, and he had sent it over to Edwin for one of his Indian crow skins that he had for sale. Dave was another dedicated fly tire who had been immersing himself in the hobby for decades, going back to his early teen years. He even worked at a tackle shop. I guess it's safe to say that anyone who was dealing with Edwin and purchasing feathers or bird skins from his ill-gotten collection is probably a lifelong avid fly tire. Now, admittedly, as I read through some of the forum comments that I'm going to share with you, the community kind of takes offense at the way that we out here on the outside looking in think that they're all these crazed, feather-obsessed individuals. So I'm going to try to back off on that from this point forward because I don't mean to make these people out to be crazy for feathers or anything like that. It's just a hobby that they really love and there's nothing more to it. I mean, who are we to talk anyway with all the time we put into learning about, talking about, listening about, watching about crime, right? (laughs) Yeah, none of us have any room to talk about anybody else's hobbies, I'm sure. As I was saying, anyone who is dealing with Edwin and purchasing bird skins and feathers from him, they are avid fly tires, and they all appear to implicitly trust Edwin. After all, the couple of buyers we've talked about thus far had sent him thousands of dollars in advance with the promise to send and bring the bird skins to them. So there was a lot of trust indeed. Anyway, Edwin packed up an Indian crow along with a few other bird skins that he was looking to sell at that trade show. And he took the train north headed towards Newark on Trent. When Edwin arrived at the fly fishing show, he did meet up with Dave Carn and gave him the Indian crow. Edwin next encountered a guy from Denmark named Jens Pilgard. Jens is an acclaimed blacksmith known for his handmade Damascus steel blades, weapons of the medieval times, daggers, swords, cleavers, spears, and pole axes, as well as Viking jewelry, pendants, bracelets, charms, and other pieces. He also happened to sell fly tying supplies and is an avid fly fisherman. When Edwin came to Jens's booth at the trade show, he was giving a fly tying demonstration to a small audience of onlookers. When Jens had a free moment, Edwin pulled him aside and told him that he had some birdskins for sale. Jens was astounded not only at the perfect condition that the birds were in, but the fact that Edwin was willing to part with such prized items. Jens gave Edwin $6,000 there on the spot for three of his birds, and he threw in a Malaysian peacock skin that was worth almost $5,000, which Jens promised to send to Edwin because he didn't have it with him. And just like that, 
Edwin made more than $10,000 in cash and a birdskin, which he knew he'd be able to sell off and make even more money with. Jens also wanted a kingbird of paradise skin. They'd been so rare across the decades that he'd been a fly tire, he'd only seen one or two in his entire life. Edwin said that he would make some calls to see what he could do, knowing all the while that he had several of them stashed away in his closet. And dreamers, I had no idea how lucrative the feather and bird trade business actually was when I started this whole thing. But Edwin here is making crazy good money doing this. I had no clue that these things were so valuable. A month after the trade show, Edwin decided to treat himself to a vacation to Japan. He had been studying the language at King's College. And while he did some sightseeing, and I guess he practiced his conversational Japanese, which he was pretty good at, good enough to take part in speech competitions and win them, he did seem to go there with the intentions of doing something quite specific. He wanted the experience of tying a popham fly under a grove of cherry blossoms. And that sounds like a highly Instagrammable moment, if you ask me. So when Edwin returned from his trip to Japan, he got in touch with Jens the blacksmith and told him that one of his contacts did have a kingbird of paradise that he had asked him about at the trade show. Jens couldn't believe it. It was practically unheard of that anyone had the skins of this bird. And even if anyone did, you'd have to pry it from their cold, dead hands before they'd be willing to part with it. It was a head scratcher. Jens didn't quite get how this little American flute-playing punk was able to find someone with a supply of kingbirds of paradise skins. And as Edwin is wheeling and dealing, jet-setting around the world, the police investigation into the break-in at the Tring Museum was at a standstill. Even though Edwin was leaving his digital talent prints all over the place, they still hadn't caught on. There is a law enforcement entity in the UK called the Wildlife Crime Unit. There's one in the United States, too, called the Department of Justice, Environmental and National Resources Division. So the Wildlife Crime Unit had yet to uncover anyone trying to smuggle bird skins at any of the airports in the United Kingdom. And tests that were run by the forensics lab on the evidence that Edwin had left behind at the museum the blood, the DNA, the piece of latex glove, and the glass cutter that he had dropped. All of that came up empty too. Edwin's information was not in their national database. And Edwin was confident that he had gotten away with the heist and continued to sell his wares to the eager fly-tying buyers with impunity. But you know and I know that all good things must come to an end. So dreamers, you've probably figured out by now that Edwin was not going to be able to carry on selling these stolen bird skins and feathers forever without somebody taking a look at this whole situation and being like, hold on, wait a minute, who does this kid think he's fooling? Nobody, I mean, nobody on the planet Earth has a bird collection this vast, consisting of birds this rare, in a condition that was that perfect. 
and that aha moment would strike someone who had attended the Dutch Fly Fair in May of 2010. This is a biennial event. I was today years old when I learned what biennial meant. I almost wrote biannual, but that's twice a year, so I googled what is every other year, and it's biennial. So this festival is held in the city of Zwolle, located in the northeastern part of the Netherlands. And I looked up pictures of the event, and it is so beautiful there. And the vendors, they set up all of these white canopies along the Drontermeer Lake. There is a centralized canopy where fly tires from all over the world are there to show off their skills. They're on a stage seated at a table with their materials with them. And one of the demonstrators was a Dutch guy named Andy Bokolt. He was putting together a salmon fly using rare feathers that he brought with him from his own personal collection. And one of the onlookers making his way through the main canopy watching these tires in action happened to be a 20-year law enforcement veteran from Northern Ireland. He was not named in Kirk Johnson's book, so he referred to him as Irish, so we'll do the same. For much of his career, Irish worked as an undercover operative during the Northern Ireland conflict known as the Troubles. The conflict was primarily politically driven. However, the two sides are usually referred to as the Protestants and the Catholics, but this wasn't necessarily a religious conflict. But anyway, Irish considered himself lucky to have made it out of the troubles with his life and a hobby that he took up to help him relax and unwind and decompress when he had some downtime was trout fishing. He had also begun taking up salmon fly tying, but he wasn't like one of these really avid fly tires. He didn't have hardly any interest in rare feathers or the authenticity of the flies that he was tying. So anyway, Irish was making his way around the main canopy watching the various demonstrations when he happened upon Annie Bulkolt's table. Next to him, he had this really beautiful antique case with some little trays that you could pull out individually. And each tray was lined with salmon flies, all of them made with authentic feathers. Irish began asking Andy a few questions about his collection, and they got to talking about the rarity of the feathers used in classic salmon flies. Even though I said Irish wasn't crazy interested in rare birds or feathers, Andy did want to show him a bird skin that he recently had the luck of finding. It was a blue chatterer, a whole skin in perfect condition. And while I did say Irish's interest was more low-key than the average fly tire, he did know enough to see that this particular bird skin was unusual. In fact, he had never seen anything like it. Typically, the birds that you find for sale online are pretty old and tattered. Like someone's great-great-grandma used to wear it on her hat when she took the carriage ride down to the pub or something, and someone found it and yanked it off a of granny's old hat and threw it up on eBay for auction. No, this bird was in perfect condition. And something else unusual stood out to Irish about it. 
the cotton that was used to fill the bird's eye holes, it looked kind of old. Like something from a different century kind of old. Whenever this cotton was harvested, it certainly wasn't within the last hundred years. And the bird's wings and feet had been preserved so neatly tucked in and close to the body of the bird, it was obvious that it had been collected, taxidermied, and stored and kept with great care. And it was from an entirely different era in history. So Iris was curious as to how Andy happened upon such a rare find in this pristine condition. He asked because seeing the bird suddenly triggered in his memory that last year he had read about the 2009 museum heist in Tring. And the bird that this man had in his hands definitely looked as if it had been carefully preserved and stored in a museum, not in great grandma's closet. I think the average Joe wouldn't have necessarily made that connection right away, but Irish isn't your average Joe. While the Troubles conflict wasn't technically a war, it may as well have been, and Irish survived because of his sharp skills and law enforcement training and experiences, mixed with a little bit of luck, I suppose. That's only to say that nothing is going to get over on this guy. So as soon as he saw that bird, it shouldn't surprise any of us that it would take a cop to recognize something suspicious and to be able to put it together that quickly. He had a feeling that this bird was one of the 299 missing from the Tring Museum. And Andy further explained that a young flute player, an American living in England, named Edwin Rist, had sold it to him. Irish made a mental note to do some Googling as soon as he got home. Back in Northern Ireland, Irish finally settled in and got to his computer. When he looked up the website that the fly-tying Dutchman had told him about where he found Edwin, classicflytying.com, he clicked around until he navigated his way onto the trading floor. He found, just the evening before, a post was created for an adult male flame bower bird skin that was for sale. The post had only been up for a couple of hours and already had over a thousand hits. Irish clicked around some more and found several links redirecting him to eBay auctions and listings for several other species of bird skins. All of them had been uploaded by the same eBay merchant, Flute Player 1988. So Irish picked up his phone and dialed up the Hertfordshire Constabulary and gave them the tip. Check out this seller on eBay. He's got quite the collection of rare bird skins for sale online. Word about the tip from Irish made its way to Detective Hopkin. She did some clicking around and immediately obtained a subpoena to retrieve Flute Player 1988's information from eBay. Before long, she had Edwin's full name and his London address. She found out that he was a student at the Royal Academy of Music. And when she contacted the museum's ornithology curator, Mark Adams, they checked back through their records and there was his name. Edwin Rist had signed in to visit the museum 
more than seven months before the break-in. This lead didn't have Detective Hopkin doing cartwheels or anything. After all, every lead before this one had taken her nowhere. So this was one more thing that she would follow up on, thinking that it would just end up filed away under disappointment. Even though this was one of the most promising leads thus far, she just wasn't moved by it. And I get it, when it comes to crimes, this wasn't at the top of her priority list. And that may be why she never took the time to sit down and click around the internet to look for the birds. The birds and the condition they were in was so rare, she probably would have found them much sooner. At the same time, she had to take care of the more pressing cases first. She called the Royal Academy of Music to inquire about Edwin. And wouldn't you know it, he had just flown home for the summer a couple of weeks before her call. This was June of 2010. It had been a year since the break-in and she missed him by a matter of two weeks. Detective Hopkin was thoroughly disappointed. And she knew because of budget constraints that there was no way that the higher-ups were going to approve of her traveling to New York to question her new person of interest. But the urgency to get the birds back had suddenly risen to the top of her priorities. They'd already lost a year, and in that time, Hopkin had come to understand and appreciate the historical importance of the birds and what it meant for them to be brought back to the museum all in one piece and hopefully with their biodata tags still attached to their legs. She considered putting in an extradition request for Edwin to be returned to England, but she didn't think that the United States could be bothered with it. So she would just have to be patient and wait for Edwin to come back for his next and final year at the Royal Academy. But she couldn't help but think about the birds and where they might be. Were they in the United States? Or were they still there in England? And what did this flute kid do with almost 300 birds? The new semester at the Royal Academy was scheduled to begin on the 13th of September. Detective Hopkin would have to wait until Edwin came back to school and for the administrators to call her to confirm that he was back, that he had checked in, and his official address was given to them before she could petition for a warrant to search his place. She had to have the actual address and that it was verified that it was his address for sure and that he was actually there. And once Edwin was settled into his place, he got right back to it. He sent out a bulk email to the buyers he had done business with over the past 12 months to let them know he had a couple of items available for sale. He attempted to contact his Danish friend, Jens, to see if he wanted any more birdskins too. He also got onto eBay and put his new address information in. Because Detective Hopkin had contacted eBay requesting to be informed of Flute Player 1988's address information if and when it was updated, she immediately received an email from eBay providing her with Edwin's new address. He was a 20-minute train ride away from the academy. And Edwin's final listing on the trading floor forum was posted up on November 11, 2010. 
That evening, Edwin went to bed earlier than he usually did because he had some rehearsals in the morning. He was in his final year at the academy. He wanted to be razor-focused on his flute playing. He was less than a year away from graduating and realizing his biggest dream of playing in the best orchestras in the world. In fact, the Boston Symphony Orchestra had already extended him an invite to audition. It was an astounding accomplishment for a young man who had only just turned 22 years old. Not too much longer after the sun rose on the morning of Thursday, November 12, 2010, Detective Hopkin, along with two other officers, made the 40-mile or 65-kilometer drive down to London. As they were on their way there, Hopkin thought about Edwin and what an unlikely suspect he seemed to be. He had no prior criminal history to speak of, but with the information that she had about his visits to the Tring in November of 2008, the postings that she had found that he had made on eBay and on ClassicFlyTying.com, and the fact that the records indicated that Edwin had purchased all those small baggies and the glass cutter also on eBay. Detective Hopkin was more than confident that she had the right person. A little more than 500 days after Edwin had wiggled his way in and out of the museum window, Detective Hopkin and her two officers were standing at his front door. They knocked, and when Edwin came to the door and swung it open, he saw the trio of officers standing there, and he sheepishly asked them, Is there a problem, officer? Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and stop part four here. We're going to find out what happens to Edwin next when we're back very shortly for the fifth part of our series. As always, I want to remind you to look up California Dreaming on Facebook, like the page and join the discussion group. Follow on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. If you have a dollar or two to spare each month, you can help support the production of this show through our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and search for California Dreaming. Feel free to reach out. Message me with case suggestions. The email is CaliforniaPod at gmail.com. I want to thank you all so much. Don't forget to keep listening past this outro where we are going to go over some of the conversations about Edwin, as well as the author of The Feather Thief, Kirk Johnson. And I'll share some of the posts that don't get too far ahead of us in the story because I don't want to spoil it for you here. And perhaps later on in the next part or so, we'll discuss more of the posts on the Fly Tying Forum. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. All right. If you are still listening, I want to thank you for sticking with it. I mentioned earlier that I wanted to share some of the posts on the classicflytyingforum.com. I think it's pretty interesting. It gives you a glimpse into what these people think of Edwin and Kirk Johnson and people like me who show up and start poking around on their websites. They're a pretty protective group of individuals. 
And it honestly wasn't until I read some of the posts that I felt as though I had completely intruded on some sacred ground here. But all I can say is I guess it's a good thing that I don't make any money off of telling these stories. Otherwise, I'd be accused of exploiting the world of fly tying. So I searched Edwin and I found a whole bunch of conversations. One of the last ones from September 23rd of 2020, there was this conversation thread posted by a couple of members. One of them wrote, Edwin was a member on our classic forum and we all knew him well. Interesting, but very sad story. He put some of us in a bad way by posting on our trading floor, posting things like I'm selling off some Indian crow to buy a new flute. When the story broke, we were dumbfounded. It is a challenge to find the real thing, and I'm sure many question the trail of origins after Edwin's thievery. Another member replied, With a little research, I easily came to the conclusion that the book, The Feather Thief, was a hatchet job by an author who went into this with an agenda. That doesn't excuse Edwin's crime, and it's true that he gave the fly-tying world the proverbial black eye. I know many of the folks mentioned in the book from well to casually, and they all assured me that they did not know nor did they possess any of the feathers that were for sale. I'll take them at their word. As far as the feathers I own, they were all acquired before the heist at the museum, so there's no worries for my part. Just a short internet search today can lead you to many of these various exotics for sale. Plus, it is also well known that the prices continue to increase because they are the same feathers recycled for a higher price and therefore for a profit. Personally, because of my ethics, I do not partake in these sales simply because I can no longer be sure of the origin source of the material. And to be honest, they've become too rich for my blood. Another member commented, Not to beat a dead horse, but as they said, Edwin was a huge name in the community and an active member here. He definitely gave a lot of bad press to the group as a whole. I read the Feather Thief book. It was interesting for sure. There was some good stuff in there, an interesting crime story, some important history of the exotic feather trade. I'm not sure about the author's agenda, but I was disappointed with the way he made all of us salmon fly tires out to be feather-addicted people who can't help themselves and don't care about the illegal feather trade. Those people exist, but it is the minority in my experience, at least I hope. There was also a line about how fly tires don't even fish. Total garbage unfounded generalization, though true in Edwin's case to my knowledge. It's worth reading but I'd caution people who aren't a part of the community to take it with a grain of salt and do your own research. Those in the community, I think, will feel similarly to me, especially when people we know are portrayed in a not-so-positive light. I am also cautious of exotic materials. I own my fair share. I acquire them ethically. But honestly, I don't ever know their true origin 100%. I do agree that the cost is very prohibitive to most tires and increased demand has the potential to lead to some shady things. 
but there are so many classic salmon fly patterns that don't require anything exotic and are still very beautiful. One just has to dig a little deeper into the books and find these patterns, but they are just as satisfying as those that need the holy grail materials. I hope that fact becomes more known so people don't feel so unable to start tying the classics. Another commenter wrote, A final note from me, I'm sick of the topic of this friggin' book showing up every few months since its publication, and usually from someone on the outside looking in who knows nothing about fly fishing or what is a major part of the sport to all of us here, fly tying. For my classics, I proudly use the best substitutes I can find, and it is a well-established fact that is what we all do, and no one, no one looks down their nose for any reason at that practice. Yes, I do have a small amount of what I call the real thing, and I use it sparingly for something special on occasion. But to those who proudly work with and adorn their classic or artistic flies with exotic substitutes, bravo and well done. My other thoughts, I'll just keep to myself. They'd probably get me banned from the site. Okay, well, dreamers, I guess it's a good thing that I just poked around and didn't go posting and making comments on their forum. I'll just go ahead and put everything out there on a podcast instead. On a different thread from January 11th, 2019, there was even more discussion about the book. One member wrote, I finished reading mine last night. I bought it used on eBay very inexpensively. I don't think it was a waste of my time or money to read the book. I'll pass it on to someone else who won't have to donate to the author. It gave me insight into a world I wasn't familiar with even if it was tinged with his protectionist perspective. I found it to be an interesting read. The author did do quite a bit of research, but I found several factual inaccuracies. The book, having been written from a preservationist as opposed to a conservationist viewpoint, certainly had the anti-sportsman slant, demonizing anybody that used natural materials in their craft. Anybody that needs to hire a bodyguard and thought that 250 people at the symposium knew or even cared who he was clearly wasn't able to view the facts concerning the case objectively. I think the ending was anticlimactic. It just fizzled out. You can't change the ending of a real event, but if there's no story, then what's the point? The book should have probably ended when Edwin got caught. Instead, the author set himself up as Captain Chatterer, defender of the wildlife. He was going to get to the bottom of things, but he didn't. Certainly not every exotic feather at the symposium was illegal. Some of them probably were, but to make everybody that sells a feather or ties classic Victorian salmon flies out to be a criminal falls into the category of absurdity. It's similar to the use of ivory. Near as I can tell, the author only counted one of the subspecies of birds stolen as being on the endangered species list. It's no wonder that no real law enforcement agency cared about what goes on at a fly-tying symposium. Perhaps there's nothing there. 
Full disclosure, I do not condone the burglary of museums or anybody. I don't condone the illegal use of any threatened or endangered species or the poaching of anything. In my business, I sell ivory. I work very hard to make sure that I comply with all agency laws and regulations. I work with my area U.S. Fish and Wildlife to make sure that I do. I hold all the appropriate import-export permits, and I've gone through the cities. That's the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wildlife, Fauna, and Flora application process many times. I wonder what new worldwide tragedy the author will choose next. So dreamers, in regards to the bodyguard that was mentioned in this comment, Kirk Johnson, the author of the book, after three years of emailing Edwin Rist, asking him for an interview, followed by a long succession of no's, finally agreed to meet with Kirk to discuss the feather heist. Edwin, who was living in Dusseldorf in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia, had only given Kirk a week's notice. So he quickly booked a flight and he and his wife flew there. But because Edwin was this burglar, criminal, thief, who had stolen a million dollars worth of precious specimens, Kirk felt the need to enlist the services of a professional German bodyguard. Needless to say, while Edwin is a tall young man, he's also very lanky and unassuming. So it turned out Kirk was pretty safe in the company of the flautist. The next member to comment about the bodyguard wrote, Maybe the author should have gone into the witness protection program. The objective was to sell books, and the author introduced the element of danger in the form of a 20-year-old flautist who was so dangerous that one needed a bodyguard to interview him. Absolutely absurd. I doubt the truth of that, by the way, and I'm not surprised that fly shops are selling his book. And another member commented, Admittedly, I haven't read The Feather Thief. Based on this post, the author sounds like another misguided radical who thinks he found a new angle to attack sportsmen with. Maybe I'm missing something, but is tying with endangered species really a problem in Western countries? I've been to a lot of fly shops and shows. So far, I have not had a vendor say, Psst, come here. I've got some spotted owl feather in the back. Shame on those who do tie with the endangered stuff. Another member commented, I disagree with the majority. The flies tied by Edwin Rist were with poached feathers. Rist was a very good tire, considering his supplies were made better. He was a thief. And in referencing the ivory dealer, you wouldn't consider dealing with poached ivory, and I see no reason to give a pass to a feather poacher. He destroyed some very important historical and biological collections. And he made quite a few bucks tying flies that no one else had access to. To hell with him. Another member replied to that comment and said, To be clear, Edwin sold and tied with stolen feathers, not poached ones. This is the thing that some don't seem to understand. Stolen and of so little value that the museum didn't even miss them. Rare today or endangered today has no bearing on the crime. Those skins were old dead things the museum kept just because they had them. 
They were killed quite legally at a time when people were wearing those same feathers on their hats and costumes. The value of the skins was not monetary, and the laws on burglary are based on a monetary value. A cop won't even investigate a theft unless it has a certain dollar value. Any perceived value of the birds is based on possible future scientific use. I imagine that the act of burglary was more important to the investigators and the courts than the value of these feathers. The next member commented, I agree with most of what you said. However, any commodity is worth what someone is willing to pay for it. To say the feathers had no value but were sold for several thousand dollars is contradictory. The world market value of anything is exactly what it's worth. If you are talking about questionable scientific value, we may be in some agreement there. Things like the Antiquities Act and huge collections seem to place an extraordinary amount of importance on old stuff for little to no good reason. But I will leave that up to the experts. When someone's caught breaking these laws, it makes the whole community look really bad. Okay, dreamers, from there, we're going to start getting into some spoilers. So maybe we'll come back to the fly tying forum comments later on because I don't want to give too much of the story away just yet. Thanks again for listening and sticking around for this bit of additional information. And I will see you over in part five.